Welcome everybody. Glad to have you guys with us here at New Life. If you guys would go ahead and find a seat. <clears throat> that would be awesome. I want to welcome you here to our Carney campus. I also want to welcome those of you that are worshiping with us at, uh, at our North Platte campus, as well as those that will be worshiping with us online today. So listen, I just got to ask, how many of you guys are excited to be at New Life Church today? Yeah. Man, I'll tell you what, it's great to start in unity, okay? And so if you're not excited to be here, then you have a couple of options, right? Because we obviously are, myself included, then you just got to change your heart a little bit or you're free to get up, walk out of the doors of the auditorium, adjust the attitude and come right back in, all right? So there you go, but you're not free to leave today. But uh, yeah, that's the story. So let's just be, we're a church that is on the same page, moving the same direction. It's exciting to be that church, right on? Uh, today we're going to be talking out of 1 Kings chapter 18. If you have the Version app, then you already have all of my notes. And so I provided for you some information there that you can actually, you know, type in some notes. You can also follow along. All of 1 Kings chapter 18 is on there. If you don't know what Version is, the person next to you might, but it's an app that's free online. I would definitely, as a pastor, want to encourage you, have Version. It's like walking around with a biblical library right on your smartphone. It's awesome. You're going to want it. Um, look, we're going to jump into this passage of scripture. We're going to be talking about um, Elijah on Mount Carmel. All right. Now, when I was a kid, when I was a kid and I heard the story about Elijah on Mount Carmel, I, I thought this is the best story in the Bible ever. Here's this prophet. He climbs a mountain made of caramel. I mean, how much better does it get? What does he find on the mountain of Carmel? Well, it's not made out of Carmel. Um, apologize to some of you that may have thought that. All right. It's just, that's the name, Mount Carmel. And uh, today we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture out of that first Kings 18, but we're really looking at a couple of questions. I want you to be thinking about these questions all morning long. What mountain does God want you to climb today? That's a difficult thing. All right. It's a difficult challenge, but what mountain is it that God wants you to climb today? And it's going to be different for every single one of you. The other thing is when it comes to faith, one of the things, the examples that Jesus gave us about faith is that he said, you can speak to the mountain, right? That controlling mountain. You can speak to that, those issues in your life that are keeping you from experiencing all that God has for you. He says, you can speak to those mountains by faith and command them to be cast into the sea. And there's a mountain that today might be for you as a mountain where faith needs to rise up so you can speak to that mountain and command it to go away. It could be a mountain as an example. Just give you one to keep you thinking. It could be a mountain of unforgiveness. And this is the day to speak to that mountain and go, there's no longer am I going to let that mountain control me. And in Jesus' name, I lay, I lay that offense down, right? God, forgive me for carrying it. That could be an attitude that I'm talking about. So what mountain do you need to climb? What mountain do you need to speak to as we go through this? So before we get into 1 Kings 18, let's jump back three years before this moment in Scripture. Before this moment in Scripture, three years before it, Elijah, Elijah goes to King Ahab and he tells him there's going to be a great drought that's coming because of the sin that you have brought upon this nation and the sin of the people. And King Ahab and Jezebel were some very sinful people and they led their people into sin 
um, as well and their heart away from God. And so for three years, they've been experiencing this drought. Well, as a leader, when your people are not happy and there's, there's like turmoil amongst your people, it always makes your job as a leader more difficult. And that's what King Ahab has been experiencing for the last three years. For three years, it hasn't rained. As an agricultural state, we understand the power of water, right? Water to a crop, you know, equals a harvest. But if you don't have water, you don't end up with a crop. And if you don't have a crop, then you end up in what? A famine. You end up in a place where people are hungry, people are starving, and that's going to create problems for you as a leader. So for the last three years, King Ahab has blamed the prophet Elijah for his problems, And he's been hunting him down for three long years. So now to now to first King 18. Here's what we find. We find Elijah, after these three years, is sensing the Spirit of God leading him back to make a bold challenge to King Ahab and to the people of Israel to display God's power in one big way that turns the people back to the heart of God. So Elijah's on his journey back to where King Ahab is. And on his way, he runs into a guy by the name of Obadiah. And when he runs into Obadiah, Obadiah recognizes him, right? And then Elijah says, hey, look, you know who I am. Go get the king and have him meet me here. I got something for him. But Obadiah is filled with fear, filled with fear. Here's the reason why he's filled with fear. Take a look at this scripture. It says, Obadiah was speaking. He goes, and now you say, Elijah, go go and tell your master, right? But uh, as soon as I leave you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you away to who knows where. And when Ahab comes and can't find you, he's going to kill me. Yet I have been a true servant of the Lord all my life. This instantly helps us understand this man we're talking about, Elijah, is a powerful prophet known throughout the land. He's so known that Obadiah is fearful because he's seen and he's heard about the miraculous wonders that God has done through the prophet. He's so fearful that he, can, he literally thinks to himself, if I leave, God's literally going to pick you up from here and make you appear someplace else, and I'm the one that's going to pay the price for it. Well, good thing for Obadiah, Elijah is a man of his word, and he literally says to him, I'll be here when you come back. That's, that's where he is. So when the king comes back, when the king comes back, then Elijah is there, and he's, he's interacting with the king, okay? But the first thing out of the king's mouth is this. Oh, you're the troublemaker of Israel. You're the one who's been causing the famine. You're the one that's making my leadership more difficult. You're the one that's undermining my kingship. And out of his mouth comes those words, like, you are the troublemaker. Well, Let's just, be, let's just be honest about it, right? Who really is the troublemaker? It's not the prophet. It's the king. The king and the queen, the ones leading the nation into a sinful behavior, they're the ones that have brought this devastation upon themselves. And I would just pause for a moment and say to you, isn't it interesting how you and me are so easy to blame others for our struggles and our trials and our challenges before we look inward at maybe what God wants to address in our own hearts? And that's exactly what you see the king doing here, is he is deferring blame to someone else. So here's what Elijah says next. He doesn't get into a shouting match with him. He goes straight to the point. He goes, okay, king, look, here's the deal. Summon all Israel to join me and you, by the way, on Mount Carmel. 
and along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who, by the way, are supported by your wife, the queen, Queen Jezebel. So here's what we have. We've got Elijah that's going to go there. The king's going to go to the top of the mountain. He's invited all the people of Israel to the top of the mountain. And then he's got these prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. Now, just so that you understand it, because this will be a significant point in the story. The prophets of Baal, they worship a god or gods that, you know, highlights a god of the sun and a god of the rain. The prophets of Asherah, they worship god or gods of the moon and sexuality primarily. So you've got these multiple gods that are all at work. And think about it from their time perspective, right? They, they've got now, they've presented before the people a god of the sun and of the rain and a god of the moon and of, you know, sexuality. And they're pretty much dominating and controlling and warping the minds of all the people, you know, with this false religion from these, these two separate, you know, deities and the way that they are living their life. And Jezebel has actually got 400 of these prophets on the government payroll taking care of them. But here's what I find so interesting, is that right after, right after Elijah tells King Ahab, meet me on the mountain, guess what King Ahab does? He does it. Like, he goes and he gets the, the prophets, he gets the people, and he meets them on top of the mountain. Like, that's so interesting to me, because here's a guy for three years who's been wanting to kill this dude. And then he meets him face to face in a field, unarmed. He's even told about it beforehand by Obadiah, like, you're going to meet Elijah. You'd think that if the king really wants to kill him, go get a few, like, armed soldiers with you and go out there and let's just kill the guy in the field and let's have this over with. But that's not what he does. And I can't help but think to myself that his own anger and his own revenge blinded him from making actually what would have been a smart decision. Like, if you really want to kill him, then get some guards and meet him out in the field and let's take care of this dude. But that's not what he does. And what's interesting to me is how, how, how anger and revenge, they warp our minds from thinking the best opportunities out. And for your life, when you live with anger and revenge alive in your heart, it's always going to lead you to the worst decisions that you'll ever make in your life. So if that's you today we got to lay that down. we, we got to walk away from that because Ahab actually goes through with it. Okay, yeah, let's go meet. Let's go meet on the mountaintop. So there they have 850 false prophets on top of the mountain. All Israel is gathered. Here's what the prophet does. He speaks to the people first. Then Elijah stood in front of the people and he said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But look what the people did. What did the people do? But the people were completely, they didn't say a word. Here's God's people, challenged by the prophet, and they remained silent. Like this was their opportunity to say, look, we abandoned that false worship. We're with you, Elijah. We will worship the one true living God. But instead, they remained silent. They remained silent for a couple of reasons. One, their fear of, of what would happen to them, the repercussions if we follow Elijah and what happens if Elijah doesn't come through. And sometimes, sometimes, guys, we remain silent in our faith journey with God because we're fearful. What if God doesn't show up? What if God doesn't show up? So what do we do? We, may, we remain silent on the sidelines and we don't activate our own faith in key moments when God puts us in amazing places. 
And for some of us, we've experienced that. And if that's you, don't beat yourself up over it. Just remember that when God speaks, God means it. And when God speaks, he's going to fulfill it. And you don't ever have to be fearful of sticking your neck out there for God and then getting it cut off. That won't ha- that's, not what, that's not the way God works. But here's another reason why they remain silent. They remain silent because of their guilt over their false worship. And for you and, you and me today, we're here in God's presence The worst thing that you could do today is God speaks to you and you remain silent because of your guilt and your shame from your past sin. It's the worst thing that you could do. Like the enemy would lie to you right now. He'd whisper in your ear and he would say to you right now that the very words I'm telling you, don't listen to those words. And our guilt and our shame, they keep us from responding with a resounding yes to God. And the enemy wins one more week So today, somewhere in this journey, if you sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself, which is going to highlight your sin, you say yes to God. Don't stand by and just be silent. Elijah went on, though, to give the prophets now. He speaks to the prophets next. And he says to them, okay, guys, here's the challenge we're going to do. We're both going to build altars. You both have calves, right, that we're going to sacrifice on the altar. So I want you to build the altar, put the sacrifice on it. Um, it's going to be built out of stone, then out of wood, then the sacrifice, but you're not going to build a fire underneath it like you normally would. And this is what we're going to do next. Next, we're going to call upon our God. You'll call upon Baal worshipers. You'll call upon your God. I'm going to call upon my God, the one true living God, who, the creator of all things, right? I'm going to call on the one true living God. Um, and you're going to call on your God and ask for him to send fire to burn up supernaturally the sacrifice, This is what's so sneaky. This is what's so sneaky about Elijah's move. Is the prophet, the the prophets of Baal are worshiping the God, call him Baal for now, and it's the God of the sun. (laughs) Like if the sun God can't burn up the sacrifice, what God can? Like the flood God? Right? The moon God? Like the sex God? No, he says, go ahead, I dare you. Your God's the sun God? Let him burn such a beam of fire from that sunball that heats us up every day. Let him just consume your, your sacrifice. In fact, by the way, there's so many more of you. He's bound to hear you faster than, you know, than my God is to hear me. So I'm going to let you guys go first. And so off they go. And the Bible says from morning all the way till noon, they are shouting like to their God, like Baal, hear us, light this on fire and show these people that you are the one true God. And that doesn't work. So somewhere around 1030, they decide, well, maybe we should dance around this as well while we're shouting. And so they do that all the way till noon. And then at noon, this is what happens. About noontime, Elijah began to what them? Mock them. Hey, look, I'm just going to tell you, it's a lot of fun being a prophet. Okay. You can have some fun being a prophet as well. All right. So here he is on top of the mountain for hours. Now they've been doing this. He begins to mock them. All right. You guys, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to shout louder. Shout louder for surely Baal is a god, right? I mean, perhaps, perhaps he's daydreaming or he's relieving himself. The Bible's got some funny stuff in it, guys. You don't find that everywhere, all right? Maybe your God's daydreaming or he's relieving himself or maybe he's away on a trip someplace or he's asleep and he needs to be wakened. This is awesome, right? So here's what the prophets of Baal and Asherah do. So they shouted louder. 
And they followed their normal customs, and then they went on beyond that. They began to cut themselves with knives and swords until blood even gushed out of them. These dudes are so desperate to see their God work that they're willing to follow the prophet Elijah, right? Elijah, who basically is their opponent, they're willing to follow their opponent's advice to try to get things done. So the Bible says they do this from noon all the way until evening. All the way till evening. Until Elijah basically is saying this, enough is enough, guys, all right? Enough is enough. Um, The Baal worshipers are still on their side of the mountain, still making all their chaos, all their noise. Some people have literally sacrificed themselves, blood's gushed out, they're laying there on the ground dead. All of this commotion is happening over here by their altar, and Elijah says to the people, hey, look, I'm going to change the atmosphere on top of this mountaintop. So come and gather around me, I'm changing the atmosphere. Not I'm changing the atmosphere like it's getting ready to snow. It's I'm changing the atmosphere spiritually. Watch, watch me. Watch what happens next. And Elijah, he said, he called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him. All this commotion's happening over there. And as he he did something very strategic, watch what he does. He He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. What does that tell you? It tells you that there was an altar at one point of history that was built where God's people went to worship the one true living God. And that over time they had abandoned the worship of the one true living God and the prophets of Baal had probably climbed that mountain and destroyed that altar. And now they stand there in the midst of this rubble and Elijah, he brings the people back to who they are. He goes, I want to tell you who you are. I don't ever want you to forget who you are. You're loved by God. You were created by the one true living God. You know, this is where your ancestors worshiped the one true living God. And I'm going to rebuild it stone by stone and put it back together while I tell you the history of who you are. And I tell you how amazing God is. And after he rebuilds the altar, he goes, now, now it's my turn. Right? Now it's our God's turn. And they put the sacrifice on it. And then he says, just to prove the point of how amazing our God is, take four jars of water and pour it on the sacrifice. And they do that. And then he says to a couple people, take some shovels and dig a trench around this altar. And they dug a trench around it. And then he says to them, hey, look, you guys know those four jugs? Go fill them up again. And they pour it on it again. Then he says, go fill them up a third time. And they pour it on it so much that the sacrifice is soaked and the wood is soaked and the stone is soaked. And the trench around it is filled with estimated somewhere around three gallons of water. It's just full of water. And at that moment, with all God's people around And Elijah reminding them of who they are, he makes this prayer. Elijah the prophet, he walked up to the altar and he prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people, listen to his heart, so that these people will know that you are our Lord. You are God, and that you have brought them back to yourself. You see the loving heart of God at this moment? And then immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven, and he burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all of the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, 
the Lord is God. We get our attention focused on the fire that flashed from heaven. The attention really should be on God's moving in a miraculous way to prove to his people he is God. And church, God wants to move in miraculous ways in your life today to continue to prove, to continue to show, to continue to model to you his, his never-ending, unfailing love that he has for you. That's who God is. And these people, they saw with their own eyes the miraculous power of God. They felt on their own skin, some of them a little too close, singed like, like at barbecue time, you know, like the, the hair singes. There's probably a little smell of hair singeing in the air right now, right? Because they just saw it and they felt it. And here, they, what, the, what do they do? We praise you, God. You are amazing. You are awesome. You are incredible. And what did the prophets of Baal do? They stood there in awe, not experiencing it, not worshiping the God of all gods. You got a choice to make today. You're either going to give it all and press into God and experience all that God has for you and praise him and lift up your voice and shout to God today, right? And seek after him with all your heart. Or you're going to be like one of the prophets of Baal and you're going to sit by and watch from a distance. I want you to know today, you don't have to take that second choice. God loves you right where you are and he wants you to experience his grace and his mercy today. There's absolutely nothing that can keep you from the love of God unless you let the sin that's in our life stay unrepented. Sin that's unrepented, the Bible tells us, separates us from God. So what do we need to do? Repent of sin, bring it back to God, and draw close to God today. So I'll be left on the sidelines wishing that we could have experienced all that God has for us. Elijah, at the very end, the finale of the story is that he turned to the people and he said, look, seize all those 850 prophets and take them down into the valley and kill them. And that's exactly what they did that day. So what are we going to learn from this, from this story? What is it that we're going to glean from this story? First, we need to look at Elijah and the mountain, right? I mean, here's some things Elijah had to face. He had to face possibly the fear of what it would be like to go toe-to-toe with a man who wants to kill you. He's been hunting you for three years. And he goes face-to-face with him, right? I'm not saying that he was fearful. I'm just saying that you got a guy who has professed he wants to kill you, and you're going to meet him out in a field someplace, all right? He has to overcome that. He had to climb a mountain alone. He's the only guy on the mountain out of thousands of people now who are standing there with God, while 850 prophets are there, they obviously have knives and swords because they've cut them own cells with them. They could turn and use them on him. You've got the king who's there. You've got the people that are there. And it's Elijah standing on the mountain all by himself. Then he turns to his people and he challenges his people to get on his side. And it's like that right there. It's like crickets. Nothing happens. But he decides in the midst of all of that opposition to follow the unbelievable plan of God. And in the end, he frees the people from the entrapment to Baal and the false prophets. Elijah literally becomes a figurative image of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Here's how he does it, right? He's ready to give his life for his people. He's standing on the mountaintop all alone, unguarded, cannot defend himself against that many people. He's ready to give his life. He speaks with a tongue like a double-edged sword, and it strikes to the heart of the issue. 
And then he displays the miraculous power of God. And then lastly, he frees the people from their sin. I want to tell you something today, that this story is an example of, a, of the character and the nature of our God. That our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that grace didn't start with Jesus Christ only. That the Father's heart towards you, towards humanity, towards his creation has been a heart of grace. It's been a heart of loving his people right where they're at. And it's been a heart of loving them back to himself. That's a picture in the Old Testament of exactly what Jesus did for us. That's who God is, church. That's Elijah in the mountain. What about us in the mountain? To answer the question about us in the mountain, we need to put ourselves kind of into the shoes of the people. And we need to see that there's three things that we really glean from the actions of the people that we can overlay on ourselves today and live by. Here's the first one. Here's the first challenge that we see with the people that we need to live by. And that's this. We have to take a side. We have to pick a side. You cannot sit on the sidelines just observing. Christianity today in 2017, soon to be 2018, it cannot sit on the sidelines, church. If you call yourself a Christian, you can no longer be silent. You can't be silent anymore. We have to express a Christ-centered life with a non-condemning and a compassionate accuracy that's centered on God's word today. And how in the world do you do that? It starts with this. First, start praying. Start praying. Be people of prayer for the things that break God's heart in this world. So let's just say that you've got an issue in our culture that, man, it just really nags at you. It's something that it gets you. It's the kind of soapbox you want to get up on and you want to preach and you want to point your pointy finger and you want to make your pointy point. Before you make your pointy point, we need to be in prayer. Like we need to be people that are praying about strongholds. Then our soapbox addressed to the stronghold. We first need to be people that bathe the issues in prayer. And here's what you're praying about. God, give me your heart for the people, not the issue, for the people that are wrapped up in this issue. Give me your heart for it. That's how you don't stay silent, but yet you respond the way God wants us to. We also need to speak, and, uh, and we need to you know, speak out of the fullness of the Holy Spirit living within us. We need to be very careful to guard our own emotions, our own heart, and our own mind. In moments when we want to get up on your soapbox and you want to make your point, that you can easily drive people away, and you can easily make things worse by what we say, unless we're willing to walk with the fullness of the Holy Spirit and literally say, God... If, unless you fill me with your thoughts and you fill me with your heart and your mind, then my mouth is more likely to say what my heart wants instead of what your spirit wants. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your heart for these people that are wrapped up in these cultural issues so that I can speak to them with an authority that doesn't drive them farther away from the cross but entices them to come to the cross. That's an act of discipline on our part. I got it, but that's who we have to be. But to do that, then we also have to be people that are willing to seek out God's word for the truth. Can't seek out God's word for what you think it says. We have to get God's word into our hearts so that we can say God's word with accuracy and we can actually live it. But instead of being people that just stay silent, we also need to, lastly, we need to be people that exercise our rights. Hear me carefully. Exercise your rights. What are some of the rights you have as a Christian in our culture right now? Here's some simple rights. You can pray in public. 
Do you realize that just taking a moment to pray before a meal can be a powerful evangelistic message that proclaims who God is? Do you also realize that when you're at a coffee shop and you're with somebody that you've been just kind of sharing life with and there's a moment to pray for them, that instead of saying, I will pray for you, it's let's pray right now? And did you realize that by exercising that right, sometimes it makes a big, bold statement to the world? How about this? Vote when it's time to vote. It's a right you can exercise. You can vote God's heart on issues. I would encourage you to do it. Worship together every time we have the opportunity to worship. It's a right that we have. Let's exercise that right. Let's use our freedom of speech in a way that, you know, leads people to Jesus and, you know, instills hope in the hearts of people. Be careful how you use social media, by the way, right? Because there's many of us on social media that we use it as our platform to judge and condemn and to make our harsh comments behind the safety of our nice little iPhone or iPad or behind the safety of our you know, laptop where no one can challenge us on it. Be careful, church. Be careful how you use those rights. Be careful how you use the right of your own leadership. Use your leadership to entice people into a relationship with God instead of repelling them by your leadership. Don't be silent. But here's a couple of other things we can glean from the people. We need to rebuild the altar of God in our hearts. Just like Elijah, he rebuilt that altar. We need to rebuild an altar in our hearts as well. There's, there's a rebuild that needs to happen. We have drifted from our first love. We have drifted away from our first passions. And when we drift away from our first passions, then the stones fall off the altar and cracks happen in the altar and it becomes unusable and it's not the kind of altar that's gonna give worship and glory to God. And if that's your heart today, rebuild your passion for Jesus. Rebuild your biblical living towards God. Maybe you need to rebuild your audacious faith in what God can do. Or you need to rebuild your love for others. Or you, re- you need to rebuild your hunger for the knowledge of who God is. Or maybe you just need to rebuild your heart for the lost. Or you need to focus on rebuilding your marriage so it can be a strong weapon that God can use to you know, share the good news with the world. Jesus said it this way to us in Revelation. He said, but, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far that you have fallen and what's his solution? Turn back to me. So if your altar of your heart needs to be rebuilt, what do you do about it today? You turn back to Jesus. You turn back to him and you go, God, oh man. I can't believe I let this altar of my heart of worship before you and living a life of integrity before you fall apart and be in disarray. God, forgive me for that. And you know what you'll find? You'll find the hands of Jesus picking up the very stones with you and putting them back in place because I'm just gonna tell you, you can't do it on your own. You need his help to rebuild the altar. God wants that because he wants you to experience amazing worship before him. But this, let me just say one last thing for the people we need to learn. The people are the ones who took, you know, the prophets down into the valley. And with Elijah's instruction, they, they killed the prophets. I know it sounds brutal, but for you and me, we got to seize the false beliefs in our life and we got to destroy them. Things that don't line up with God's word that you've adopted and you've allowed into your life because they are culturally like acceptable, but they're anti-God. And just because something's culturally acceptable and it makes it a lot easier for you to live in whatever world you live in, whatever sphere of influence you live in, doesn't make it right. 
Do we have to lay down those things that we've adopted and we've watered down God's word and we have to take them back to God and we need to literally say, God, will you change, will you change me? Will you, I want to exchange my beliefs for your truth today. That's where we got to go today. So what does that mean then for you in the mountain? What does it mean for you? Let's just bring it, boil it right down now to you. Is God, God might be asking you to climb the mountain alone and make a bold statement for him today. And if that's what God's doing, he's shown you a mountain that stands between you and him and he's asking you to climb it and find victory over it. And you're going, but I don't want to do it alone. You might have to do it alone. You might have to climb up the mountain alone to find the freedom that God's wanting you to find. But know this, if God's the one who showed you the mountain, then guess what fire you're gonna find on top of the mountain? The power of God. You're gonna find the power of God. You climb the mountain in great boldness and assurance knowing God's the one who called me there. He's the one that's gonna help me overcome it. That's if God's called you to climb the mountain. Climb the mountain alone if you have to. If you can go with somebody, by all means, go. But don't wait on people to keep, you know, to conquer the mountain. Conquer it. God also might be asking you to take the mountain of compromise or the mountain of what I'm just going to coin a phrase like the cherry-picked Christianity. And he might be asking you to take that mountain into the valley and put it to death once, once and for all. And if that's you today, you bring that unbelief, that misbelief, that construed belief, and you bring it to God and you say, God, destroy this because this is inhibiting me from living out the faith that you called me to live. God might also be asking you today to rebuild the altar. And if God's asking you to rebuild the altar, then I would suggest to you to to confess your sins to God, repent to God, and ask for his help in picking up the stones and rebuilding the altar of worship so that your relationship with him is thriving and that your worship to him is pure and righteous and right. God also is asking every single one of us, every single one of us, he's inviting you to worship him on top of the mountain today. And on top of the mountain, here's what you're going to find. And over these next three songs that we, we share together, we've got three songs. And we're going to use these three songs to worship God on top of the mountain. You can experience his fire. His fire in this passage is his presence. You know what God wants you to experience today more than anything else? His presence. That's what he wants you to experience. And what happened for the people when they experienced God's presence? Not, not because they experienced a column of fire that burned up this thing miraculously. What happened when the people experienced God's presence? They were transformed. They were never the same again. So church, I want to invite you over these next few minutes to experience the power and the presence of our almighty living God. Let's worship him today. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, today we have heard from your word a powerful example of of the display of your amazing love for your people. That, Lord, you love your people so much that you displayed a magnificent example of power and authority as you sent fire to consume up that sacrifice so that your people would turn their hearts back to you. Lord, I pray for this church that these people, myself included, that we... We would experience the fire of your presence in this very auditorium, right where we're at at our North Platte campus or at our Kearney campus. We would experience the power of your spirit at work in our lives. We would not be the same. 
I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't have to wait for some miraculous fire to happen for us to get our lives right with you, though. That we would recognize you already sent your son Jesus and you gave his life on the cross and he's rose from the, from the tomb. It's empty and he sits at the right hand of the Father right now waiting to return for us. That, Lord, that would be enough for us to say, God, I lay my life down before you. So, Lord, just simply put, we invite you. We invite you to come. Meet us at the altar of our heart and consume us as we are the sacrifice laid down on the altar as an attitude of worship for you today. In Jesus' name, amen.